0: Welcome to Season 10 of The Trust Show Podcast. You know, I thought it would be hard to record an episode every week, but after more than hundred episodes, I find it harder to not record an episode in the week that I take a break between seasons. Anyway, if there's one shift in how we work that resulted from the COVID pandemic, it's that we embrace the possibility of working remotely or hybrid where some work is done remotely and some at the office. I visited that topic in Season 8, Episode 5 of this podcast, but it has been six months since then, and I learned and thought a lot about that since. Obviously, uh, the first question that comes to mind is, uh, what did remote or hybrid work do to productivity? And obviously, if it hurts productivity, we shouldn't embrace it. And at the same time, if it increases productivity, we certainly should. Looking at research revealed results in both directions, which is troubling by itself and caused me to wonder how accurate and free of confirmation bias that research is. But the most revealing study was one done by Microsoft in late 2022. When asked whether remote work increased or reduced productivity, 87% of employees said that it did, but only 12% of leaders agreed. So I guess it really depends on who you ask. Working remotely also has trust implications. It relies on trust, but it also affects trust. The purpose of this episode is not to prove whether remote or hybrid work increases productivity or not, or even prove the relationship that it has with trust. It's to give eight specific pieces of advice on how to maintain and even grow trust while working remotely or hybrid The first advice is uh, to consider that remote work or even hybrid is not right for every job or every task. You know, there are different jobs. Uh, When uh, in a study back in 2022, uh, employees were asked whether they were offered by their companies to work remotely. And 58% said that they were offered to work completely remotely. 87% of those accepted, but it varied with, computer in, with uh, different industries. So the computer industry, for example, uh, was 89%. So 89% said, sure, I'm, I'm gonna work remotely. I, I have a friend who started working remotely for a company in California, he lives in Texas, and he almost never went there. I mean, it was always working remotely. He's a software programmer. Software program, programmers, for the most part, work independently. I mean, they have to coordinate their work and uh, make sure that everybody's working on the right part and and that uh, there is a lot of uh, good information that's available for each one of them on somebody else or on other people's work. But in general... Most of the work is done independently, individually. I remember as a software engineer, software and hardware engineer, that I could work from anywhere because it was just me, the computer, and whatever development system I was working on. So 89% of people working in the computer industry. By the way, he started working there remotely long before the pandemic. I would say this was about five years before the pandemic. Uh, And... That was the only way he worked since then. Had nothing to do with the pandemic. So 89% of the computer industry people said, yeah, sure, I'll work remote, Uh, why not? Uh, Frankly, it may even give me more peace and more quiet time to work and be more productive. And I do believe that programmers, software programmers, are probably more productive working remotely, individually, with no interference. but but look at the other side. How about the, uh, so in that study, food preparation industry, only 29% said they'll they'll work remotely. I'm trying to figure out how exactly do you work in the food preparation industry remotely. Think about pilots. Think about surgeons. Think about truck drivers. Now, the thing is that those different roles may exist in the same company. So within the same company, you may have people that really, their job can only be done at the office. They they have to physically be located somewhere. Maybe not the office, but somewhere, and and they have to be there, like pilots. You know, that's uh, uh, what if uh, the uh, pilot unions would uh, start uh, uh, protesting and and decide that they want to work remotely. <laughs> would you board an airplane with no pilot? You know, autopilot can do so far. Surgeons, same thing. You know, I'm I'm going to operate surgery remotely. You know, even if it was possible with the robots that they have today that that can operate remotely, I'm not going to want to be under surgery by a surgeon who's remotely trying to operate a robot that has my chest open. Truck driver, same thing. Uh, unless again, we get to uh, driver less uh, autonomous trucks. So the same company may have different jobs that would require employees to be at the office or away from the office. And and that should be okay. We shouldn't uh, try and have a one size fits all. There are different tasks within a specific job. Some tasks that require individual contribution, uh, Deliverables that are standalone versus deliverables that are team deliverables. A uh, teamwork, some coordination may be required. So, even within a task, uh, within a job, a specific job, you can break down the tasks into tasks that can be done remotely and even more productively remotely versus tasks that can only be done in location and with other employees. And I think that the key word here is other employees. So tip number one or habit number one, whatever we call it is that remote work is not appropriate for every job or every task. So don't make general policies about it. Consider each job and task independently. The second consideration is that Working remotely is not right for every person. You know, we have different personalities. Uh, part of it is, is being an extrovert or an introvert, for example. I can tell you about myself. I'm, I'm an extrovert. I'm, I'm an extreme extrovert, which kind is kind of weird if you consider it my childhood, but, but I am. Uh, and, and what it means is not necessarily that I need the opportunity to express myself, as it is that the best ideas come to me when I can brainstorm with other people. So uh, I was just telling my daughter this morning that, that uh, I'm, I'm having trouble with developing some mathematical model for something. Uh, yeah, I, I love math. Hey, sue me. Uh, but uh, And I was telling her that if I had 30 minutes of her time and tried to explain it to her, in thirty minutes, I'll find the, I final I'll finalize that that uh, mathematical model. But right now, it's taking me days because I'm working on my own. So there are personality aspects that uh, would make remote work, uh, which is you know working on your own, uh, better for some people and worse for others. I mean, to me, I really thrive when when I'm around other people. Uh, if you told me that the job would be completely remote, uh, I I would frown. I would have an issue with that. Uh, there's obviously the benefits of uh, working from home, and initially, I mean, I work from home. My my office is at my home, um, and uh, I, I got used to it. But but it wasn't. It didn't come naturally. Think about different Myers-Briggs personality types. Think about. Um, uh, Pat uh working genius types and, and other personality types. Some people are are going to thrive working remotely. Some will thrive working at the office, and vice versa. Uh, it requires self discipline. Uh, you know, part of the uh, self discipline is uh, uh, depends on the uh, the environment that you have. You know, do you have an environment? Can you create an environment that is Destruction avoid uh, destruction free uh, or would you have destruction? you know what one of uh, we're considering getting a dog now uh, we had a dog many many years ago now we're considering doing it again and, and one of the biggest considerations in my mind is I'm working from home that dog is going to be here. Will it let me work? How far am I from the refrigerator? I mean, I I gained, I was so proud of how much I lost weight uh, using a process based on which I built the uh, seven step process, trust habits process. And I gained all of it back when I was uh, in very short distance from the refrigerator. So uh, that's part of it. Th- there is equipment that's required to work. I mean, there is equipment that you have at the office uh, that's readily available. So think about a printer. Think about your screens and so on. So there are things that need to be in the environment for a person to be able to work remotely. But, but we have to consider the fact that not every person can or has the personality to work individually and remotely. You know, it, it's like asking, do people want autonomy? And, and the answer is almost definitely yes, of course they need autonomy, they need freedom, they need to uh, have their their control over how they do the job, not what job, but how they do the job. Sure, but it's not 100% of the people. I, I have my own personal experience uh, in people who wanted autonomy versus people who did not. There was a study done in, I think, 2014 in England um, that that showed that 78% of people said, yes, we want autonomy, we embrace autonomy, we thrive with autonomy. 22% said they didn't. So there is a personality component to it, which I think if, if you want to be productive, if you want to improve productivity, allow working from home, and again, there's no doubt that there are benefits for people working remotely. Not just to the people, but but to the company itself, you know, smaller office space and, and so on, um, less electricity. But you have to make sure that uh, you assess the personality of the people, their willingness, their ability, not just the task, not just the job, which is what I talked about in the previous habit. But it's do they have the personality? Do they have the self-discipline? Uh, do they have the right environment? can they create the right environment do they have the right equipment you may need to provide them with the equipment you know and it's not just a laptop it could be a printer the screens everything i mean you you can't ask somebody to work from home eight hours a day or whatever uh with subpar equipment uh, that's nowhere near what they would get if they worked at the office so that's a consideration provide training really training on how to work remotely uh, and be effective and be, be productive working remotely. Uh, and then the other thing is you have to assess that on a periodic, on, on a regular basis. Provide the training, get the assessment, uh, is it working, um, and and make sure that it really does work. Let's not get to the point where the employee would say, yeah, it works, it increases my productivity, and the, the uh, leader or the company says, no, it doesn't. So... To summarize, remote work isn't right for every person. You need to consider the personality, consider and assess the personality, the environment, the equipment, and other factors. You need to provide training, you need to provide equipment, and you need to assess this on a regular basis. (music) The third tip is uh, not only for leaders, but for the employees themselves. And that is avoid assumptions and covert expectations. You know, I remember when I started working the first company here in the US, my boss, the CEO, said to me, uh, when you assume you make an S of you and me, if you take the word assume and you break it out, you're going to get the S, you, me. So when you assume you make an S of you and me, Uh, you think it's coincidental that the word assume is made of those three? Actually it is, Uh, I guess it is. But uh, here's what happens. Why do we make assumptions? We make assumptions because there is a minimum level of knowledge we must have to feel safe, to feel comfortable that we have enough information. The problem is that initially, with first impressions, with first interactions, we don't have that level of information in, in the form of facts. So what do we do? Our brain fills in the gaps with assumptions, the problem is that those assumptions are not necessarily true. Now, when you work in the office environment, it, it's not again necessarily the office environment as it is. Everybody's working at the same place, then uh, there is hardly a probability, a, a uh, an opportunity to make such assumptions. You you can easily ask a person, but when we work remotely, it's a lot easier to. You know, do I send an email now? Do I call them? Do I set a Zoom call or or any other tool? Uh, No, I'm just going to make the assumption. And that's bad. So the first step in this is to recognize that you're making assumptions. And instead of making those assumptions, first of all, you know, by recognizing it, you need to separate what you know from what you assume. So what, what do I know that's a fact? Now, by the way, I heard about it from another person. Is it an assumption that they're making or is that a fact? So you have to be careful with, uh, you know, what I call the fifth law of trust, uh, trust is transferable. When you get information from somebody else, you have to also ask yourself, do I know that this is a fact or is this an assumption that they're making? Or an assumption that somebody else is making that they're conveying to you. Okay? So separate what you know from what you assume. Don't make assumptions. Ask questions. okay, that's can't can't be clear about that. So that's the assumptions part. The second part is expectations. You know how it's like you somebody disappoints you, because you expected more from them or you expected something specific from them and they didn't do it, so you are disappointed with them. Of course, they didn't know that you expected them because you never made it clear to them that you expected it. Once again, when you're all in the same physical location, it's a lot easier to say, hey, this is what I want from you, but hey, this happens in the office too. This, this is something that happens when people are all in the same location and I expect one person to do something and they didn't do it and then I'm disappointed and, you know, one of the things that, that's the hardest to ever hear is I expected more from you. It's like, why didn't you say so? So the second part of it is make the expectations, make your expectations clear, okay? Especially when we're working remote. It's more important when we're working remote, And and the third component is feedback. Uh, You know, the the feedback, if you're in the same physical location, sometimes you don't need to give feedback or you don't give feedback intentionally. You give feedback unintentionally because your body language says it already uh, to the other person. So uh, even more importantly, when we work remotely, when we don't see each other, to give feedback, and, and I'm not gonna go too deep into how to give feedback because I've, I've done that. I actually recorded, uh, I think, five or six episodes in, uh, I think it was season four on giving feedback and taking feedback. So here I'm just gonna summarize it. Give feedback like you care, take feedback like it matters. So I'll summarize the third habit or the third tip to uh, increase productivity and, and maintain trust Uh, while working remotely or hybrid. Avoid assumptions and covert expectations. Separate fact from assumptions. Don't assume, ask. Make expectations clear. Give feedback like you care and take feedback like it matters. Number four has to do with communications, with effective communications. So the first thing that I want you to think about is What is communication? Communication is an idea that forms in your brain that needs to end up in another person's brain, the person you're communicating with. Now, it starts in your brain, then it comes out of your mouth. Now, when it comes out of your mouth, it might be a little different than what started in your brain. Do you know the feeling when uh, you say something and you go, did I say this out loud? Or this sounded so much better in my head? Well, that happens. So there's already uh, one distortion to the idea that started in your head. Then from your mouth, it goes to their ear. This is where it's subject to audio interference, to sound interference, to maybe an air conditioner working, maybe other people talking at the same time. So they didn't really get exactly what you were saying. Another distortion. And the third level of distortion is what comes through their ears and goes through their brain has to go through their cognitive processes, which are subject to bias and uh, their knowledge and and so on. and And so the idea that ends in their brain is not what started in your in your brain. So it's really important that you remember that what you say is not what they hear. And one of the tools to deal with that is to close the loop on communication. Make sure that communication is acknowledged and understood. So whether it's you're the communicator and you ask what did you get from what I said, or or, um, can you repeat it back? Or if you're the person receiving it, just, you know, even if you're not being asked, just repeat what you were told. Okay. Uh, the second part is, and, and I'm going to talk more about uh, increasing time and intimacy, but uh, when we communicate, a big part of communication is the uh, body language, the tone of voice and uh, and facial expressions. Uh, and in, very important to trust is the consistency of the words you're using and, and body language. And so, uh, I, again, I'll talk more about that uh, later. So just increase time and intimacy. It would improve uh, communications. Now, uh, there are two things that can happen. One is that we have not enough information that reduces trust. When people hold on to information, that reduces trust. And, um, and sometimes people do that just as an act of control, of power. I, I control who gets information. You know, bosses and leaders that, that tend to be in the center, kind of a start topography where they're in the middle and they control the information. All information must reach them, but they control who gets what. That's That not only reduces trust, it reduces productivity and effectiveness of the organization. But then on the flip side, Too much communication can be overwhelming. You know, everybody copying everybody on everything. And and it's like you get to the point where you, you miss critical pieces of information simply because you get too much. The way to solve this, and again, in a hybrid environment, in a remote environment, that's even more critical. Make information available and easily accessible. So, Information has to be available. It should not, with within restrictions, you know, there there's confidentiality and other things uh, that, that you need to consider. But um, make the information available, make it easily accessible to people. So everybody who needs information will have access to it. But communicate... So th- this is kind of passive. So you make information available somewhere. You know, there are a lot of tools for that uh, uh, where you can deposit information, uh, company wikis. And uh, uh, I, I don't know. There, there's just a lot of tools uh, that are available for that. Slack is, is one. Uh, so you make it available and, and accessible to everyone. That's, that's kind of uh, reactive or, or um, passive. But actively, the, the act of communicating a message is, an, is active. And, and so communicate what is necessary based on the needs, based on the interests of the other person. So don't copy everyone if they don't need to know it. Make that information available to them. But communicate to other people what they need to know, what you know that they're interested in right now. Of course, it gets a little tricky if all of a sudden, halfway through the uh, communication thread, uh, somebody else needs to know something. So you need to add them. And now the question is, when somebody responds and does re- reply all, then do they reply to everyone plus the new person? You have to control that. There is no doubt. But just don't overwhelm people with communication because that doesn't build productivity or or even trust. Now, here's another one. I, I read... Someone who posted a, uh, I'm going to call it a soundbite that says, uh, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, uh, it's it's better to not reply to an email than reply with an unthoughtful answer. It's I'm I'm paraphrasing. Well, I understand. I agree. Don't give an answer. If somebody asks you a question that requires you to think about it, don't just give an answer without thinking about it. But we have to also keep in mind that more than 50% of our email in our inbox or or that is trying to get into our inbox is spam, which means that we have stronger and and stronger spam filters, which means that there is a higher and higher likelihood that a message never reached you you need to let the other person know that you got a message if somebody sent you a message and you need to think about that let them know that you received the message that you will think about them about it give them a timeline to when you believe you'll be able to respond and obviously respond because then you're going to lose their trust if you said i'm going to respond by friday and you don't you forget about it. So so keep that in mind that you, you will need to think about what the answer is. But just do me a favor, reply, let them know that you got it. Let them know that you'll think about it because they don't have a way to know that you even received it. I mean, you tell me, has there never been a situation where you sent an email and uh, the person on the other side actually did not receive it? You didn't get an answer from them but they, because they actually did not receive it. So you may be thinking, oh, they're thinking about it. No, they're not. They just didn't receive it. So it really builds trust and productivity when we actually reply and say, I don't have an answer for you right now. I'll give you an answer within a week. I don't have an answer and, and I don't have time to think about that. that. That's fine too. That's much better than you just ignoring that email. Let them know that you received it. Last thing is never, ever use BCC um, unless the people in the message actually know that there is someone BCC'd. I mean, one of the worst thing that you can do to trust is when you send me an email. Let's do it the other way around. Imagine that I just sent you an email. In that email, I criticized you. I gave you some constructive, in air quotes, Feedback on something that you've done. It's obviously not good feedback. It's bad feedback. You've done something. Now, you need that feedback because it will make you better. But it's only between you and me. That's fine. When all of a sudden you get a reply from your boss to the same message. How did I, my boss get that message? Oh, wait. I must have put them in BCC. What do you think about me now? Do you trust me? I mean, the whole idea of BCC is to hide the fact that I copied one more person from you. Don't use BCC. And if you do, I mean, I use, I'll give you an example of when I use BCC. I use BCC when I send an email to myself and copy like 200 people. And I don't want to everybody to start going reply all and uh, or, or to for everybody to know everybody else's email addresses. And that's typically not within an organization. I use BCC when somebody introduces me to a third person and I move the person who made the introduction to BCC and I say, I moved so-and-so to BCC, so we're not going to burden their inbox when we reply to each other. But otherwise, don't use BCC to hide the fact that you copied one more person. Number five, use more empathy. Now, it's important that, that I explain that when I say empathy, I don't mean uh, compassion or sympathy or pity. That's not Empathy. One of the components of my relative trust model is positivity, the positivity of an interaction. And the positivity is made of two subcomponents, and that's no BS, no bullshit, and empathy. There was a study done by Centus and others in 2017 that found that uh, in 51 years, in 78 countries, they used the uh, world... uh, World Values uh, uh, Survey Database, which is an open database to find information that's pretty longitudinal across multiple countries. And what they found based on that database is that in 51 years, in 78 countries, the level of individualism in both practice and values has increased 12%. Now, you may think 51 years, 12%, not a big deal, but in English-speaking countries, they isolated them. The number was 60 to 69%. We are more individual. We are less empathetic. We care less about the other person. You know, one of the exercises that I like to uh, use in, uh, in my workshops is uh, I take the number, whether it's six or nine, and put it sideways uh, kind of let it lie as if it's lying on the floor. And I ask people, what number do you see here? And some of them see six, some of them see nine. And then I put pictures of two people from their perspective, what would they see? One of them would see nine, one of them would see six. And so it's uh, pretty obvious that there are two sides to almost every story. Another thing that you you must consider is that uh, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're not familiar with that, it's, it's a pyramid of hierarchy. It's really a hierarchy of needs where at the bottom you need to have, you have your physiological needs. This is your needs for air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction needs. Um, if you don't, until you satisfy those, you can't even think about the above layer, the layer above that, which, by the way, is the pretty important safety personal security, employment, your ability to pay rent, resources, uh, health, uh, property, owning property. And only once you satisfy those needs can you even free your mind to think about love and belonging. So friendships, intimacy, family, sense of connection. Above that is your self-esteem, respect you're going to get. So you care about the respect you're going to get only if you care you Covered the the layers of love and belonging, safety, physiological needs. Only when those are covered, you can think about self-esteem or at the highest level, self-actualization. Now, you might be at the self-actualization layer. This is what you worry about. You want to be the most you can be. But you know why? Because everything below that uh, you've covered or is covered for you. The person you're communicating with may not. They may worry about uh, having shelter. They may worry about, you know, paying rent. They may worry about their personal security. Empathy is not pity or compassion or sympathy. It's your ability to see things from the other person's perspective as if you were them. Now, you know, I I talk at a very high level and, and at the value level, but sometimes it is so much simpler and down to earth so I'll give you an example Will you schedule a meeting and you invite somebody to that meeting and you send a meeting request and you put it on the calendar what do you call the meeting I can't tell you how many times something shows up and meeting invite shows up on my calendar and it's called meeting with Yoram why because it makes sense to the other person that they're meeting with me with Yoram on my calendar it doesn't make so much sense because I'm not meeting with myself. And from this, looking at my calendar, I can't tell who is the person meeting I'm, I'm going to be meeting with. Just see things from the other person's perspective as if you were them. And, and by the way, a big part of empathy is listening. Listening to the other person. Not jumping into answering it. Stephen Covey said it the best. He said, most people do not listen with the intent to understand, they listen with the intent to reply. So listen with the intent to understand. See things from the other person's perspective as if you were them, not you. It's a very important in any work environment, but double, doubly important when you work remotely or hybrid. Number six, increase time and intimacy. So just just to explain what I'm talking about, when I say increase time, I mean increase the frequency of interactions, increase the length of interactions within reason, and increase the predictability, the cadence, the rhythm of interactions. And when I talk about intimacy, I'm talking about increasing the in-person, face-to-face interactions even if it does take place over video conferencing. And I'll, I'll tell you why. So those two components, when I talk about uh, my my relative trust model, the what you do components, they start with positivity. I talked about that. It's made of no BS and, and empathy. But it's accelerated by the time and intimacy components. Okay. So let, let's talk about time. Uh, one of the, the best examples that I give uh, for time is that... Uh, um, you know, I gave it in my third TED Talk uh, on ChatGPT, and, and one of the reasons why it's being blocked in many, many classrooms at different levels of the education system is simply because uh, the universities, the professors, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know if they can trust it. They know, don't know what they can trust it with simply because they haven't spent enough time with it. Think about cruise control. You know when cruise control came out, I remember not trusting it. I was always worried that that it's it's gonna lock my car in a certain speed and I'm gonna crash into the car in front of me. Uh, and uh, I didn't trust it until I used it once and twice and three times and more and more and more. And the more I used it, the more I trust it. Building trust is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not gonna happen overnight. Now think about autonomous car. Are you willing to sit in the back seat of a self-driving car when nobody is sitting in the front? Let the car drive itself complete, completely on computers. By the way, you're probably going to hate me if I told you that uh, uh, you know there, there are auto landing systems in airplanes, and when visibility is too low and you're still landing in an, air, in an airport without any visibility, the autopilot actually lands the plane. But since you're gonna hate you're gonna hate me for that, uh, I won't tell you that. But we don't trust autonomous cars simply because autonomous cars simply because we haven't spent enough time with them. But the more time we spend with them, the more we're gonna trust them. So this is the component of time. So the more time you spend together with with the team, uh, or just any two per people, the more time, the longer, the more predictable that time is. Uh, the more they're going to um, uh, the more they're going to trust each other. So you're going to be building trust now obviously, working remotely, working from home reduces the time and it reduces the intimacy because you're not in the same place at the same time you're not meeting in person face to face, which is why video conferencing is is important. but that's something you need to keep in mind so so let's talk about. Uh, the uh, intimacy and the intimacy is really uh, the intimacy of communications. Where the lowest intimacy is email messages or text messages that that leave a lot to read between the lines. And you remember what I said about uh, not uh, um, not making assumptions. Well, you make assumptions because uh, you read between the lines because uh, you know that it's a very low level of intimacy. Of such a message. Uh, Albert Morabian uh, is known for what's called the 738 55 rule. Uh, and what he said was that we like other people uh, or, or our feelings towards other people are determined 7% by. The words that we use, 38% by the uh, tone of voice and 55% by our body language. He he, he published that in a book called Silent Messages in 1971. That rule, the 738-55 rule, was so misinterpreted so many times that, that he actually came out on BBC to explain that it was misinterpreted. But uh, beyond that, I read the original research he did in 68 and 69, and and I would challenge reaching those numbers. But bottom line is, forget the actual numbers, the intimacy of our communications. The higher it is, the more we build trust. And one of the main reasons, and, and here is something that I want to read from his introduction to his own book. He said, when our words contradict the silent messages contained within them, others mistrust what we say. And that's critical. That's something we need to keep in mind, uh, that uh, when we don't get enough uh, body language associated with the words, we make assumptions. When we get body language, either we remove assumptions because we feel that the message is consistent, we know we can trust it and trust the other person, or we feel that, the other person is lying to us, or is not saying what they mean because their body language is inconsistent with their words. So, uh, to summarize this, especially in the remote, especially in the uh, high, uh, especially in remote from home environment, in you have to increase the time and intimacy of interactions. Again, I'm going back to the first thing that I said: not for every job, not for every task, but you have to make sure that you build time and intimacy because you build the time, you, you this is how you build trust in the team uh, or between any uh, any number of people, not just between two people. And you may have to do that at the office, and this is where we're going into the hybrid model, But but you have to find a way, you have to keep track on time and intimacy within teams and within people when you are in the remote or hybrid environment. Number Seven, how can you monitor that your employees are really working? I mean, if you really care about productivity, you obviously want to make sure that they're really working because you know they're they're working at home or they are at least at home. Uh, they may reply to an email every now and then just to make it look like they're working, but they're really not working. Well, first of all, you will see that in in uh, reduced productivity but you do wait that long. So there are all kinds of software tools. Now, this is a trick question, by the way, how can you monitor that your employees are really working? So the answer to that question is that there are software tools that uh, I I found quite a few that would allow you to track your employees and you can see what projects they're working on. And and of course, it's going to uh, put some burden on them to report what they're working on right now. But you, you install some kind of software in their computer and it will track them and you can tell that they were really working. It can even detect that their mouse is moving, so it can track how much their mouse has been moving and and you can tell that they're by the computer then. Of course, if you go to YouTube and you search uh, mouse uh, jiggler or mouse moving device, you're going to find, first of all, you're going to find YouTube videos that, that are going to show you how to build something with Lego uh, and and it will show you that you know using a motor and so on. It will keep on moving the mouse to make it look like you are working. And and you know you're gonna see another video that uses an Arduino development board and uh, uh, a 3D printed uh, box of some kind uh, with a servo that would move the mouse and make it look like it's moving. Of course, you can find tools like that uh, online. Uh, and, and the funny thing is they say that you you need to do that, uh, and, and those are optical, by the way. Oh, there's even an app called Mouse Jiggler. It's really cool where your phone uh, will have a pattern, a visual pattern, and since the mouse is optical, that pattern changing would make the mouse think that it's moving, even though it's not really moving, and, of course, what they say is that the purpose of these tools is to prevent the computer from going to sleep because you know the computer would go to sleep after some period of inactivity. Well, that's bull. You can just go to the power settings of the computer and say, I I don't want the computer to go to sleep. That's not the real reason. The real reason is because your boss is monitoring that you're working and because of that, you need to show that you're working and guess what? You're not going to work just to show your boss just because your boss is trying to track you, trying to monitor you. You know, trust is reciprocal. That's, that's the sixth law of trust. If you show someone, if you trust someone, and you show them that you trust them, they will behave in a trustworthy way. Because if you trust someone and they know that you trust them, and they believe that you actually trust them more than they should be trusted, more than the level of trust that they have earned with you, it puts them in something that's called cognitive dissonance. And that's a bad feeling. Uh, And so to avoid that feeling, they're going to behave in a trustworthy way to justify the trust that they know you have in them. But that only happens if you trust them and you show them that you trust them. By the way, it works the other way around, too. If you don't trust them and you show them that you don't trust them, like using monitoring software on their computers, they will not behave in a trustworthy way. Because, and they're gonna come up with all kinds of tools that would bypass your lack of trust in them. You know, I, I remember uh, in one of the companies I worked for, uh, the IT manager came and installed, or not installed, but removed the administrative rights to the computers from all the employees. So only the IT department would have administrative rights. And I said, why are you doing that? Oh, because I don't want you to put all kinds of bugs and and, access websites you you shouldn't have and so on. I told him, how long do you think it's going to take for me to bypass whatever hurdle you put in, in, in front of me? Educate me. Educate me where I can expose the company to, to risks and I will avoid it. But when you don't trust me to do it, I'm going to find a way around it because I don't need to earn your trust. I, I don't have it. By the way, I, I'm not a big advocate to uh, trust uh, unlimited uh, and, and and you know i'm not I'm not crazy about Ronald Reagan's uh, trust, but verify. Uh, I'm not sure how you can trust and verify at the same time. Uh, Ernest Hemingway had a, a great quote. He said, uh, "The best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. Now, I'm not advocating to unlimited trust in a person that doesn't deserve it because there are risks to you, to the organization. If you put the level of trust in someone that should not be, be trusted at that level or dramatically more than the level of trust they should be trusted with. Uh, and, and other than risks, you're opening yourself to disappointments. You're opening yourself to lose trust in them in a much greater way than if you trusted them only a little more than they deserve. But the thing is, it's a cycle. It's a cycle that if you trust them just a little more than what you believe you should trust them or the level you believe you should trust them, then um, you're getting into the cycle of trust and, and, and trustworthiness rather than cycle of distrust and untrustworthiness. Bottom line is, if you feel that you have to monitor your employees, you have the wrong employees or there's something wrong with your attitude. Trust them, show them you trust them. They will behave in a trustworthy way. And if they don't, you have the wrong employees, period. Start with trust. Last point, number eight, goes to employee engagement. Employee engagement is important. Employee engagement creates trust, Employee engagement relies on trust. you have high level of trust, you have high employee engagement. I well actually this wasn't even something that I found in a study. Uh, Paul Zach found it in a study that that he did of uh, more than a thousand people. he found a 76 percent plus 76 percent correlation to the level of actual engagement. Actual engagement, employee engagement, and the level of trust that that was reported. And by the way, he only went from the bottom quartile to the top quartile. That's not over the entire hundred percent. That's just bottom quartile to top quartile. Go increasing that level of trust would increase engagement, actual engagement by seventy six percent. So engagement is important, and engagement leads to a lot of very positive things. Uh, there was a Gallup, a recent Gallup study. study that uh, showed that we are currently, we currently have 23% employees are actively engaged. 18% are actively disengaged. This is, they don't want to work there and they make make it very clear and very public to everyone. And 59% of the employees are what we call quite quitting, Those employees have retired. Don't get get it wrong. They retired. They just didn't tell their boss that they retired. They still show up to the office. So engagement is a problem. So what do we do? We have an engagement survey, employee engagement survey. Well, there are a few problems with employee engagement survey. So I'm going to skip the first problem. And I I talked about that in a previous uh, podcast episode. Uh, I believe it was in season nine. And um, the the first problem is, do you have the right questions and the risks associated with averages? I'm going to skip that. Go to that episode to to hear more. Um, I think it's called uh, the half-truths of uh, employee engagement surveys or something like that. The problem is this. The problem is that when the level of trust that the employees have in the company is very low, they don't trust that an anonymous survey is really anonymous. By the way, if you want to know why, the software that produces the survey typically would, uh, if you didn't, if, if we need full engagement or, or full response to the survey, one of the things we want to do is make sure that all employees answered, right? Uh, and so they get an email that said, you haven't answered your survey. Do you think at that point that the employee thinks that the survey was anonymous? no. By the way, they don't know that you don't know that they didn't answer, and you may know that they didn't answer. It's, even if you do know, you don't you don't necessarily know what the answers are, and it really depends on who's conducting it, how they're conducting it. If you're using a reputable source for that survey, then you can probably trust that that your boss really doesn't know. But do you really trust that? So when the level of trust is very low, they don't trust the the anonymity of their responses. They fear retaliation if their answers are not positive because most people don't like taking bad, you know, bad news. So, you know, I'm going to tell you what you really need to hear, but you're not going to take it well. And so why do I want to do that? So what happens when the level of trust is very low, the responses are actually pretty positive. But they're positive not because the reality is positive. They're positive because the people feeling those surveys, they don't trust the anonymity of the survey and they they don't trust that you're not going to retaliate. That's why they're positive. As the level of trust starts going up, this is a funny thing that happens. The responses, the reported engagement goes down. But it doesn't go down because engagement goes down. Actual engagement goes down. It goes down because we are trusting the anonymity more. We're not afraid of retaliation, so we're giving a more accurate response. Now, there is one more uh, danger in in an employee engagement survey, and that's uh, many of the companies, what they do is they just... uh, uh, they do the survey, the engagement survey, just so that their employees would feel that they really care about engagement. Something you need to know, when you do an engagement survey, you pull the pin out of the grenade and there's a limited time until that fuse reaches explosives and the grenade explodes. And if all you did is the engagement survey And a long time has passed and you either misrepresented the answers, which I've seen happen in the past as well, or you just uh, don't do anything about it. You're hurting engagement. My answer to this is is really simple. Keep your ears to the ground. Don't bury your head in the sand. Don't just do an employee engagement survey because that's what's going to tell you. If, if they're engaged or not, if the level of trust is high or not. Just keep your ears to the ground all the time. Get the sense something is something is not happening, something is not right. Fix it. Because otherwise you're burying your head in the sand. And, and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you need someone to tell you, an engagement survey to tell you that you have low engagement. Or worse at all, the level of trust is so low that it's actually telling you that engagement is good when in reality it's not. So finally, just build trust uh, instead of uh, measuring engagement, just focus on building trust. Trust me, it will build, build engagement and everything else. Research showed that. <music> Well, this is the end of uh, the first episode of season 10, longer than I thought it would take. But uh, I, I didn't break it into two episodes, so uh, you'll have it all in one place. And, and I'm going to try in this season and maybe after that to focus more on how. So pretty much the title of almost every episode is going to have the word how and uh, the word trust. So something related to trust, and I'm, I'm going to show you Uh, one of the next episodes, maybe the next episode actually, is going to be on uh, how to sell on trust and not on price, but but this time with very specific tips. So, uh, I, I realized that in in previous episodes, previous seasons, I, I started getting a little more philosophical, and I know that this might have been what what you wanted to get. And I'm not totally abandoning the philosophy of uh, of trust um, and ethics and values and and so on. Uh, but but I want to be more uh, more prescriptive and and give you tools. So so this episode gave you eight tools to to use. Uh, working remotely, next episode. Uh, next episodes will give you tools to do something else, to increase trust, to know who you can trust, uh, to build trust, and so on. May trust be with you. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show, so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast, because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, Or go to my website, TrustHabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.